0: Enjoy. Developing a message to be able to share here on this stage is sometimes an unpredictable journey. Uh, Writing messages like these week in and week out, it requires, at least for me, a lot of reading and research and trying to do the mental work of connecting ancient wisdom that we get from scripture with the modern questions and concerns that each one of us is wrestling with and so Today we're kicking off this new series called how to tell a good story and my Preparation journey this week took me down a strange path. I Spent about an hour reading obituaries of people that I've never met now that may sound depressing to you. I can assure you it was anything but that because I was reading a sampling of what has become known as viral obituaries. Anybody heard of these? This is like a new development that's emerged over the past decade or so and now in this digital age it's a normal part of the grieving process for families who have lost a loved one. You see, Years ago when families would write a family submitted obituary, they would send it into a newspaper but that newspaper made their money by charging per line for the printing. And so the obituaries that families wrote tended to be short and sweet and very to the point and they figured that they would catch up and tell stories at the visitation or the memorial service later on but nowadays when web pages are cheap and social media is pervasive families have this new opportunity to say as much or as little as they want and it's led to the era of the viral obituary Maybe you've seen some of these. Sometimes they get picked up or noticed in national news or sometimes they get shared really in a a broad circle on social media. A lot of these are hilariously funny because they don't take themselves too seriously. In fact, that's kind of the point for many of them. Like the obituary I read for Danny Lloyd, who died in Lexington, North Carolina. He was a ticket scalper, someone who constantly was buying and selling tickets to college games in his area. And his family wrote that he passed away at the age of 64 in order to avoid paying taxes this year. That was his plan. Or the obituary I read for Joe Heller of Centerbrook, Connecticut, whose family wrote that Joe was a frequent shopper at the Essex dump and he left his family with a house full of junk, 300 pounds of bird seed and dying house plants that they have no idea what to do with. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that wouldn't normally show up in a newspaper obituary column. Some of these obituaries, on the other hand, are, are hard to read because there's some families who have to describe the sudden loss of a loved one who succumbed maybe to an addiction or mental illness. Some families write about the deceased person being someone that was often harsh and mean or abusive, someone whose loss actually brings more relief than it does sadness for them. And then some of these obituaries are just heartfelt and touching Just last year, there was a Los Angeles man who eulogized his sister, Karen Sydow, who died at age 61 after a lifelong battle with cerebral palsy. She only spoke three words in her entire lifetime. She said, mom, McDonald's, and piano. Those are the only words she ever spoke. But you could sense the love between these siblings as you read the obituary and as her brother Eric said, Karen, I wish I could have made you laugh one more time. I needed you too. And all of these things are profound. I mean, they're touching, they're deep, they make you laugh, they make you wanna cry and it's partly because of the subject matter, partly just because of the nature of what's being written about but especially These stories are profound because they're telling the story of a life. In one sense, they're summarizing the effect that one person, one life, one story had on all of the other people in their orbit. But in another sense, these obituaries are sharing with the unfamiliar, people like me, what it was like to be around that person. And reading these stories with all of their quirks and their antics and the tall tales and the pranks and the unique characteristics. It made me feel like I had a personal, small insight, a small insight into the personal lives of some of these people I'd never met. I think it's a powerful exercise to ask yourself. If my friends and family were writing an obituary about my life, what would they be likely to say? Now thinking about the end of this life may not seem natural or even appealing to you. That may seem very off-putting. For some of you, this question brings a smile to your face as you think about the stories that would be told, the memories that would be shared, and some of the things that would be past the statute of limitations and could finally come out into the light as somebody wrote your life story. For some of us though, this is, this is hard. The prospect of somebody writing an obituary for you may not feel encouraging or hopeful. In fact, it may be painful to think about. But no matter how this imaginary scenario makes you feel, the truth is that each one of us is in the middle of writing a story. We're in the process of writing a story with our lives. We're choosing a path. We're creating a trail. We're leaving a wake behind us full of choices and decisions that impact our environment and impact our family and impact our community. But it's so much bigger than our choices because in the midst of telling this story, in the process of living out this narrative, we're living out the values and the priorities that mean the most to us. And as we grow in our maturity, as we come to realize what life is about, we we realize that the story we're telling has an audience. There's people that are watching. There's people that are paying attention. There are people who are going to hear this story later. Since we live in community, there are people who are listening, watching, paying attention, and being affected by the stories that we are living out, the story that is unfolding in our lives, which means that there's a lot at stake. Knowing that our actions have this ripple effect that touches other lives, it ought to make us more attentive to the story that we're telling, which is exactly what prompted me to share this series of messages with you. Because I'm convinced, I'm convinced that God desires to tell a good story through your life. I'm convinced that at the end of your life, when your time in this phase of the journey is over, at the end of your earthly life, you and God are going to sit and read your obituary together. And God is looking forward to that moment looking forward to reflecting on everything that happened in your life and God longs to be able to read that obituary with you and to look at you and smile and commend you for a life that was well lived to look at you and say well done good and faithful servant to commend you for a life that was marked by goodness in fact I believe that it's God's dream for us and God's plan for the world God's dream for us and God's plan for the world is that the church would be just a collection of people who are collectively living truly good lives, truly good stories. God's dream for you and God's dream for me is that collectively in community, we would live truly good stories together and that the rest of the world would see that and think, wow, that's a story I wanna be a part of. But the reality is that none of us can tell a truly good story on our own. And if we're gonna tell a truly good story, we've got to learn what goodness really means. You know, if you were to just begin at the very first few pages of your Bible, It might be easy to miss, but you would find, right after you got through the table of contents, you would find that true goodness is a measuring stick that shows up time and time again throughout the pages of the Bible. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter one, just the first few paragraphs in the entire narrative of scripture. You find this poetic account, this poetic rendition of the creation of the world. And after each stage of creation, God is said to have pronounced each stage as truly good. God creates light and then God observes that light and says that light is truly good. God separates land and sea from one another and says, that is truly good. God designates the rhythm of night and day, the sun and the moon and the stars, and how they create this rhythm for life on earth, and God affirms that rhythm is truly good. You keep going through that chapter, God creates all the living things, the plants and the birds and the fish and the land animals and because all of those living things were good and then God creates humans in God's own image God creates man and woman and it puts the finishing touch on that first phase of creation and God says for the first time not only is it truly good but it's truly very good God says and there's all this goodness that's sprinkled throughout the opening story of the Bible. All of this real, true goodness that's just scattered throughout this story. But that's exactly the point. That's part of the reason that this story is being told because goodness is so much more than something that's likable or something that's well done. Goodness, true goodness means the way God intended, the way God designed it, the way God drew it up. In fact, God's nature and God's character, those are the standards for what goodness really looks like. As you read further and further into this library of spiritual writings that we call the Bible, you find time and time again that people who have had an experience with God come to know God as good. David, one of the most famous writers in the Old Testament said, taste and see how good the lord is the one who takes refuge in him the one who takes refuge in the lord is truly happy and david said that with an experience of god's goodness an experience of god's protection an experience of God's connection, an experience of God's forgiveness. David had experienced so many facets of God and as he summed up all of his experiences, all of the moments when he was right in step with God, doing exactly what God wanted him to do, and then the moments when he went the wrong way and God called him back, God, or David summed all of that up and he said, God has been so good. I want you to know about it, he said. And then the psalm writer who wrote Psalm 119 said, Lord, you are good and Lord, you do good. These are two different parts of the character of God. Some of it is God's identity and some of it is God's action. But the psalmist who's writing with all of this experience of God says, God, this is who you are. You are truly good. There was a moment in Exodus when Moses and God were speaking to one another the moment when the law was handed down, the Ten Commandments. You've seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? You know what we're talking about. And God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses asks God, can I, can I see you? Show yourself to me. You know what God says? Exodus 33, 19, I will make all of my goodness pass in front of you. This is the nature of who God is. God is the standard. God is the measuring stick for goodness. Goodness is another way of saying virtuous and God is the source of all virtue. And so the concept of true goodness is inextricably linked to God. You cannot separate goodness from God because God is the definition of what goodness looks like. God is truly good and what God does Is truly good but people on the other hand people on the other hand we don't we don't measure up history testifies that humans are inherently self-centered inherently deceitful inherently hostile when their needs and their desires are threatened in fact the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament portion of the Bible makes the case that there has never been a human other than Jesus who was truly good Paul says everyone Each one of us has fallen short of the goodness that God envisioned and designed for us. In fact, Paul's diagnosis of the human condition sounds really dire. It sounds really frightening, really serious. The good news was that Paul knew the remedy. Paul knew the solution Paul had discovered the secret to living a good story or it might be more accurate to say that the secret discovered Paul. You see, Paul was in the process of living out a bad story. He didn't know it. He didn't realize his story was bad. In fact, he thought he was on the right track. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing great, but then he had this encounter with Jesus and that was the turning point in Paul's life story. And Paul's life becomes an example of the most important discovery that each one of us has to make if we're gonna tell a good story with our lives. What Paul discovered is that no person, no no matter how hard they try, no person can truly live a truly good life by relying on their own willpower, relying on their own creativity, relying on their own intuition, or their intelligence, or their skill, or their understanding. No person can live a truly good life by relying on themselves and their own direction and their own plans. The first step on the only path for a person to live a truly good life, the first step starts by putting faith in Jesus who is truly good. Here's what Paul said, Romans chapter three. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There's no distinction between people who have been trying and people who haven't been trying, Paul says, because everybody has sinned. Everybody has fallen short of God's glory, but are treated as righteous freely by Jesus' grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. You see, Paul has come to understand that his wisdom and his vision and his intuition, all of his plans were leading him down the wrong path in his life. He didn't realize it but he was telling the story that he didn't want to tell. He was literally working against God without even realizing it. And suddenly Jesus stepped in and reoriented his life. And when it happened, it required Paul to trust. It required Paul to accept a complete redirection of the plans that he had for himself. Everything he thought he knew, everything he thought he understood about God suddenly became suspect. All of his education, all of his experience, it paled in comparison with the newfound clarity that he had received from Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that's exactly how the spiritual life is supposed to work. That's exactly how the spiritual life works, because telling a good story starts with believing and trusting Jesus, who is truly good. Most of us, many of us would recognize the name Alfred Nobel. He's the famous chemist and inventor for whom the Nobel Prize is named. He lived in the 19th century, primarily in Europe, although he lived all over Europe at different times and sometimes in the US. And during the course of his scientific career, he ended up being awarded 355 different patents for his many inventions and discoveries. But the one invention for which he is best known, the one discovery that Mr. Nobel became notorious for was that he invented dynamite 1867 so you know 170 years ago or so and dynamite had all sorts of useful applications I mean it could be used for mining it could be used in construction it could be used in in real estate development there were all things all all sorts of things that dynamite was useful for and Mr. Nobel opened up dozens of factories in countries all over the world and he ended up becoming a very rich man because he was selling dynamite, this more reliable, safer explosive. But what he didn't foresee is that most of the dynamite was being purchased by military forces all over the world. And when he started to pick up on that, he he thought, well, that's, that's okay because the dynamite is gonna be a deterrent for conflict. The potential for dynamite to be used as this weapon of mass destruction might seem obvious, but Mr. Nobel assumed that it would have the opposite effect. In fact, he was quoted saying, this dynamite I've created will sooner lead to peace than a thousand world conventions or treaties He said, as soon as people find out that in one instant whole armies can be utterly destroyed, they surely will abide by golden peace. He says, when they figure out how powerful and dangerous this stuff is, they're gonna be scared of having it used on them and so everybody will just go to their own corners and it'll be peaceful, but he was dramatically mistaken. Dynamite was not the deterrent that he believed it would be. And then an odd thing happened. In 1888, Mr. Nobel opened the newspaper one day and he discovered an obituary that had been written about him. It was an honest mistake. You see, his brother had passed away, but a French newspaper got the reporting wrong and reported that Alfred Nobel had died and they followed up that announcement with a scathing obituary. They talked about his life and his inventions, but of course most notoriously the invention of dynamite, and they referred to him as a merchant of death, a man who had grown rich by developing new ways to mutilate and kill, a man who had grown rich by making it possible for more people to die in war than ever before. And in that Profound moment of sitting there reading his own obituary eight years before he would actually pass away. Alfred Nobel's eyes were opened. The scales fell off of his eyes and he realized that he wanted to be remembered for something different. He didn't want to be known as this greedy war profiteer. He didn't want to be known as the person who made it possible to kill more people than ever before. In fact, his biographer a hundred years later said, Mr. Nobel became so obsessed with his posthumous reputation that he rewrote his last will and bequeathed most of his fortune to a cause upon which no future obituary writer would be able to cast aspersions, and this was the development of the Nobel Prize program. Mr. Nobel left over 90% of his fortune, which was estimated in today's dollars to be about $260 million. He left left over 90% of that with instructions for the executors of his will to establish a program that would recognize and reward people who were working for peace and fraternity between humans. He was a man who built a fortune profiting from the weapons of war. But when he saw the light, when he experienced a new wisdom, when he came to a new understanding, he recognized that he wanted to be remembered as somebody who was fighting for peace. He wanted to be known as somebody who was a supporter of peace. Can you imagine reading your own obituary? Having this profound moment of recognizing that the story you're telling is a story other people are watching. It's a story other people are listening to and retelling according to what they see. Near the end of our New Testament, there's another letter, and a writer named James, who was the brother of Jesus, shared this challenge with Christian people. James said, are any of you wise and understanding? Show that your actions are good with a humble lifestyle that comes from wisdom. He's talking about the story we're telling. Tell a story that's marked by humility that comes from wisdom, he says. However, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then stop bragging and living in ways that deny the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. Instead, it's from the earth, natural and demonic. Wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and everything that is evil. And then listen to these last two verses. James says, but what of the wisdom from above? What about the wisdom that comes from God? James says, first, it's pure and it's peaceful and it's gentle and it's obedient and it's filled with mercy and goodness, good actions. This wisdom that comes from above, it leads you to live a life of fairness. It's full of genuineness. Those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. James says, you wanna tell a good story? You want your life to tell a story that matters? You want your life to tell a story that other people admire and want to retell because of what an amazing impact you had? James says you've got to rely on the wisdom that comes from above. Because on your own, in your natural wisdom, you'll never tell a story that was worth telling. You'll never tell the story you were meant to tell. If you want to tell the story that God has designed you to tell, you have to rely on the wisdom that comes from God. But the really good news... I mean the great news about all of this is that once you've decided that you want to tell a good story, once you become the kind of person like Mr. Nobel who sees the light and realizes that they want to change their story and tell a better one, once you've made that decision, the Spirit of God is right there to help you with the whole thing. The Spirit of God makes this possible. In fact, the kind of goodness that we're talking about It's described as a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the products of the Holy Spirit being a part of your life. You don't have to do this by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. But once you've decided, God, I wanna tell your story. God, I wanna tell the story you designed me to tell, then God says, oh, do I have a plan for you? And there's the Holy Spirit empowering you, educating you, equipping you, making you ready for every circumstance, helping you to see the opportunities, helping you to recognize the moments that God has created out out there in front of you, in your schedule so that you can live a life that's marked by goodness. When I was growing up, there was a song that was popular on contemporary Christian radio and I can remember my dad and I going to listen to a concert by this old group of four guys singing together the group was called for him and one of the songs that touched me as a teenager was called a man you would write about and it talks about all of these leaders that are written about in the scripture that God made sure to tell their stories, talks about people like David and Abraham. But then the second verse says, generations away, it's my prayer that they would look back and say, oh, to have that kind of faith and love. What a solid man of God he was. And then the chorus, I want to be a man that you would write about. A thousand years from now that they could read about, your servant of choice, one who found favor, a man who heard your voice. He says, I want to live a good story. God, I want to live the kind of story that you would set up as an example so that other people could see you through it. God, I want to live the kind of story that you would retell the kind of story that when you and I are sitting there at the end of the fullness of time and reading my obituary that you would turn to me and smile and say, well done. Well done servant, not, not because of your own intelligence, your own wisdom, your own power, your own motivation. Well done because you trusted my son, because you listened to the wisdom from above and you let me tell my story through you. This is God's dream for us. And the good news is the invitation is right here and it's open for you. When you think about the story that's being told in your life, when you think about the obituary that you are preparing with your life, it's healthy to ask yourself, Am I telling the story I want to tell? Am I living the story I want to live? Am I living the story for which I was designed? And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I'll help you. Come to me and change your direction. Come to me and be empowered. Come to me and be directed. Come to me.